Gospel, Matthew 28. We're stepping away from uh, our series in the Gospel of Luke uh, just for today to, to think about baptism. Um, we, want to, we want to think rightly about baptism because it is an ordinance of the church instituted by Christ himself. And so in, in belief and in practice, we, we, we want to be in submission to the rule of the church, which is Holy Scripture. So let's turn there today. Um, today's sermon is going to be uh, different than perhaps what we're used to. Instead of parking out in one passage and delving deeply into it, we're going to try to survey a lot of passages so buckle up. Um, in a short period of time, we're going to try to cover a lot of ground, and we're going to take as our starting point the Great Commission. Before we do, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ is alive and that he continues to speak to his church uh, by his word and through the Holy Spirit. And so we pray that Jesus Christ would wield his word among us today, teaching our minds, engaging our hearts, and strengthening us to new obedience. We ask these things for his sake. Amen. Uh, Matthew 28, beginning in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, <clears throat> the Christian faith is a profoundly spiritual faith, isn't it? You don't look to the person sitting beside you and see their, their union with Christ. You don't see their, their regenerate heart. I don't look at Calvin, sorry to pick you out, Calvin. I don't look at Calvin and say, there's a justified man, or Aaron, there's an adopted child of God, because at a glance, we don't see those things visibly with our eyes. And, and, and so... Um, while we live as Christians by faith, not by sight, nevertheless, the Lord Jesus Christ has given to his church two visible, sensible, earthly signs, uh, two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Christian faith, is a deeply spiritual thing, and yet it pleased the king of his church to give to his people two visible, sensible, earthly gospel ordinances. And the question to ask is, is why, did he, why did he do that? You know, Christ, Christ would not give us needless ordinances. He would not give to his church empty rituals. But clearly it pleased Christ for the good of his people to, to give us these two signs and seals, these two gospel ordinances. And the question again, why does he do so? Listen, listen to how one person answers that question. He says, as our faith is small and weak, unless it be propped up on all sides and be sustained by every means, it trembles, wavers, and at last gives way. 
Hear our merciful Lord, according to his infinite kindness, so tempers himself to our capacity that since we are creatures who do not think about or conceive of anything spiritual, he condescends to lead us to himself even by these earthly elements and to set before us in the flesh a mirror of spiritual blessings. Uh, that's, that's Calvin, if you're wondering. And in other words, Jesus gives us baptism and the, the Lord's Supper to, to help our weak faith and to lead us to himself. He, he meets us where we are to lead us to himself with these earthly, physical, physical visible, tangible signs. And so God, God gives us helps to support us, to, to strengthen us, to establish us in the, the way of faith. The ordinances of baptism and the, the Lord's Supper are visual aids to the gospel. That's how we ought to think about them. They are visual aids to the gospel. So that the gospel comes to us through hearing and through seeing and through tasting and through touching. And this pattern of picturing covenant grace, it's not exclusive to the New Testament. This is something that God has been doing for his people down through the ages. This is how God has always sought to strengthen and nourish the, the faith of his people. He, he gave the rainbow to Noah. He gave circumcision to Abraham. He gave the Sabbath to Israel. Check it, check it out later. Genesis, uh, Genesis 9, Genesis 17, Exodus 31. Each one is identified as a sign of the covenant, God pictured his grace to his people that they might see his covenant love for them. And so, uh, in, in the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, God is, God is saying, see, see what I have done for you. See the helps that I have given to you. See how I have graced you in my son. And I think that sets the context for us today, at least I hope it does, to, to think a little bit about baptism. And what I want to do today is try to ask and answer two questions. Originally I had three questions, but I need to cut one out. So two questions today. And the first one is this, what's the meaning of baptism? What's the meaning of baptism? I think in the passages of Matthew 28, which we just read, and another passage like Romans 6, we're, we're able to see the fundamental, basic meaning of baptism. Baptism signifies a relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through our union with Christ. We are, we are if you like, baptized into the name. Jesus says, go and make disciples and Baptize them in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptism, then, is a visible gospel ordinance which pictures and seals the believer's communion with the triune God. And as I said, that, that communion becomes a reality, a reality in our lives when we are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul can say in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, don't, don't you know that all of us who were, who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? 
We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might live a new life. We too might walk in newness of life. And so in baptism, we are visibly and publicly identified with Christ and the saving blessings that he has secured for his people through his death and resurrection. And you see those blessings, they, they come to us. They are, they are made ours when we are engrafted into Christ, when we become one with Christ, when we believe, as the New Testament speaks, when we believe into Christ by faith. Now, I, I just wonder, I want to pause here for a minute and ask, I wonder if you've noticed, as up to this point, if you've noticed that baptism fundamentally signifies what God has done for his people, not what his people have done for him. It's, it's crucial that we understand that. If we're ever going to understand baptism, it's this. Baptism fundamentally signifies what God has done for his people, not what his people do for him. You see, baptism, baptism into Christ is baptism into the Christ who died to put away sin and who by the glory of the Father was raised for our new life. Acts of God from, from beginning to end. Acts we had nothing to do that. Not acts we performed, but acts that God has done for his people in and through Christ. Of course, the, signs, uh, of, uh, the sign of baptism calls for a, for a response. Just like the other covenant signs I mentioned a moment ago. Abraham and his offspring were to walk before the Lord in faith and obedience. The Sabbath ordinance given to Israel as a sign of the covenant was to be observed and kept and so on. But the fundamental point is that God's promise is central to the ordinance, not a person's decision. See, that's the key for us to get. And in that way, you see, the ordinance reflects the way the gospel works, doesn't it? God takes the initiative in his grace. And so sum, summing up to this point, baptism is a visible sign of union with Jesus Christ and all of the blessings that are made available to us when we are one with him, when we are uh, bound to Christ by faith. Ephesians 1 Paul says, uh, uh, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Uh, Galatians 3 is at verse 27 where Paul says, those who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ and everything Christ is for his people in the gospel. And so let's go a little bit further. If baptism is given to help us understand some of the distinct blessings that our ours in union with Jesus Christ. What are some of those distinct blessings that baptism points us to? I think, first of all, the, the very first one that's probably most obvious is that it pictures the washing away of sin. Uh, the waters of baptism point us to the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. And so Peter, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, while, while interestingly enough, while speaking about the days of Noah, you know, for the New Testament apostles, baptism did not arise out of thin air. It didn't just appear in the New Testament. 
Baptism is deeply rooted in the Old Testament. Peter connects it to the ark and the flood. Uh, Paul connects it to Israel passing through the Red Sea. But Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, regarding the days of Noah, the ark, only eight in all, Noah and his family, were brought safely through water. And then he says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the body. So he's saying, not merely the outward sign, but the reality to which the sign points saves you. And just as the, the outward pouring of water upon a, a dirty individual removes the, the, the dirt, so the outpouring of Christ's blood upon the sinful soul washes away our guilty stain of sin. And so Peter's reminding us that for those who are in Christ by faith, their sins have been washed away by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, and baptism points us to that reality. Secondly, baptism pictures the renewal of our nature. So not just the remission of our sins, but the renewal of our nature, uh, regeneration. As Paul says in uh, Titus chapter 3 verse 5, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So baptism is not only a picture of cleansing, it is also an image of, of dead sinners being brought to, uh, to new life through Christ by the Spirit. Um, so God renews us inwardly. The Holy Spirit has to do a spiritual heart surgery and remove our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. And baptism signifies that. And one other thing I want to point out today is that baptism signifies our baptism by the Holy Spirit. I don't want to talk about this for a minute because I think there's some confusion surrounding it today. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul, Paul says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. All were made to drink of one spirit. Uh, in, in other words, I think Paul, he, he's telling us that conversion is the believer's baptism in the spirit. You know, we, we were baptized by one spirit, Paul says. It isn't, it isn't a second blessing that people experience at some point later in their Christian experience. And water baptism is a gospel symbol that confirms our baptism in the Holy Spirit. But did you notice, if you listen closely to the language Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 12, that baptism by one spirit is baptism into one body. Baptism is, uh, as it were, the door of access into the visible church of Jesus Christ. It is the door of access into the community of God's people on earth. And that, that's the pattern that we see in the New Testament, isn't it? When Jesus gives the, the Great Commission, go into the nations, make disciples, and then the life of disciples, baptize them in the, the, triune, the name of the triune God, and then the life of discipleship begins. Uh, we see it in Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching, people repent and believe and are baptized. 3,000 souls are added to the church that day. And the next thing we read about them is that they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, 
to the breaking of bread and prayers. And, and, and so, uh, baptism is a sign and seal of belonging to Christ and all of the blessings that he has secured for his people through his life, death, and resurrection. And so for those of us who are, who are baptized, confessing believers, there's a, there's a question I think we, we ought to be asking ourselves, not just today, but through, throughout our lives. And the question is this, does my life, does my life correspond to my baptism? Does, does your life and, and my life say that I'm a member of Christ's body? That the spirit of Christ lives within me. That the spirit of Christ has done heart surgery and given me a new heart. That my sins have been washed away because I am in union and communion with Christ. And now the the name of the triune God is written all over my life. Does, Does my life correspond to those gospel realities? I think it is one of the greatest tragedies in the Christian church today when there is a disconnect between a person's baptism and their daily life. It has become, in the minds of many Christians today, either an empty ritual or something that's all about me and my expression of of personal faith. But this is why our fathers and our mothers in the faith used to speak of remembering your baptism and improving upon your baptism because the sign of baptism is not placed upon God's people as a one-time event, but it is something that is to be looked back to for the rest of your life. It is meant to be a reality that defines the rest of your existence. And so we ought to be regularly asking ourselves, does my life correspond to this sign that God has placed upon me when he claimed me as my own? Because if the spiritual realities symbolized in baptism are a reality in your life, in my life, then then you see there will be this coherence, this connection, this correspondence between baptism and our daily lives. So that's a question for for all of us today. Is there a connection or is there a disconnection between baptism and my life? Now, let's come to to the second question, and we're going to have to fly here. But it's the million dollar question that you probably all wanted me to to come to today. Who should be baptized? Who should be baptized? I think the Bible gives us two answers to that question. And And the first answer is that believers should be baptized. Those who profess faith in, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, who make a, profe- a, a credible profession of faith. You know, when the people uh, cried out on the day of Pentecost, what must we do to be saved? And Peter, Peter's response was, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And so as the apostles went about preaching the gospel and when people repented and, and believed the gospel, they received the sign of Baptism. You know, the, the church has agreed upon that. No one's going to dispute that idea in Orthodox Christianity. We're all believers Baptists in that sense. But I think the Bible gives a second answer. The second answer is that the children of believers ought to be baptized. And you know, here, here is where Presbyterians and, and many other Christians will differ from our Baptistic brothers and sisters 
uh, in the faith. And, you know, some of us here at Trinity hold to a credo Baptist, a believer's Baptist view. And just to be clear, believer's Baptists are welcome into the membership at Trinity Presbyterian Church. They're welcome to come to the Lord's table because we do not believe that this is an issue to divide over for the sake of clarity. It is, you know, for the, for the sake of doctrine and order, in order to be an officer in a PCA church, you have to believe in covenant baptism. But what's the, what's the argument? This is the million-dollar question. What's the, the argument that baptism should be administered to the children of believers? Um, <clears throat> I'm going to mix in a little bit of biography here because, in, you know, in my own experience, this hasn't been the position I've held to actually for the majority of, of my life. I, I grew up believing in believer's baptism. And, uh, and, and in my own experience, the change occurred not, not when I found a new passage in Scripture that I had never seen before. The issue wasn't settled by a single text in the Bible, but rather it was a big picture issue. It was, it was seeing how the whole fits together in a unified way. It was, uh, I liken it to, you know, those picture books you've seen, you open them up and pages are just filled with, with black dots and it just looks like a series of random dots, but you stare at the picture for a while and eventually this image pops onto the page and you see an animal or whatever. And you can leave, after you've seen it, you can walk away and you come back and you immediately see that image. That's what it was like for me as, um, as I thought about the, the doctrine of baptism and tried to answer the question, who should be baptized? See, we, we believe, as a church, we believe that when you bring together what the Bible says about covenants, covenant signs, the nature of God's grace, the nature of the church, the status of, of the children of believers, how the Bible treats the children of believers, we believe that it leads to the inevitable conclusion that the children of believers should receive the sign of the covenant, just as children of believers did in the Old Testament. I think the, the, the key, at least in my own experience, the key to all of this was the doctrine of the covenant. Because we see, we see in the Bible that God graciously enters into covenants with his people. He enters into covenants with Adam and Noah and Abraham and, and Moses and David and Ezekiel and Jeremiah speak of a new covenant which, which Jesus says is being fulfilled in his, in his life and his death. And you see, every covenant in the Bible has implications for children. Adam's covenant had implications for his children. Actually, it had implications for all of his posterity. It had implications for you and me. Uh, God's covenant with Noah had implications for his family. Not just his wife, but also his three sons and, and their wives were brought into the ark because God had made a promise to Noah that was for him and for his family. And, and uh, God's covenant with Abraham, most importantly here for the issue of baptism, the covenant with Abraham included Abraham and his offspring. Uh, the promises that, that God gave and the relationship that God established with Abraham 
was not just with Abraham, but with Abraham and his family. And that's why the sign and the seal of circumcision, which is not merely an outward ethnic marker, but Paul calls it in Romans chapter 4, a sign and seal of the righteousness of faith. Circumcision was a sign of spiritual grace. And God commanded that sign to be applied not only to Abraham, but also his children. And when you step into the New Testament, here's here's the gist of the argument I'm, I'm trying to make. What you find is continuity, not discontinuity with this pattern. God's covenant embraces the family. And so I want you to try to imagine this with me. You know, you're you're in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and you hear this guy uh, named Peter preaching, and he's preaching from an Old Testament book. He's preaching from the book of Joel, and he's talking about a promise, and he's drawing a line of continuity from the Old Testament to the New Testament. He's saying there was a promise made and there's a promise kept. And he's speaking to Jews who are coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says to them, the promise is for you and for your children and for all those who are far off, as many as the Lord God calls to himself. What's surprising in that passage? What's surprising in that passage is not the for you and your children. What's surprising... It's not really surprising if you knew the Old Testament, but what would have surprised them is the statement for those who are far off, not just the the Israelites, but now to the Gentiles. This promise is going to go to the nations of the earth, but framed within the context of saying, this promise is for you and for your offspring. Now that's striking language. Because it's the very same language used again and again and again in Genesis, in Genesis 12 and 13 and 17 and 22 and 23. You and your offspring, you and your offspring are <clears throat> included in this promise. And so the, the predisposition of these Jews at Pentecost would be for me and my family. Because this is how the Bible taught them to think about God's covenant promises and his covenant purposes. If, let me put it this way. If, if children were not included in the promise at Pentecost, it would have been the greatest excommunication in the history of the church. Uh, let's, let's bring in some other passages, though. And I, I want you to see, think about this. Do these fit with this pattern of continuity? Pastor Dave mentioned the one I, I want to think about for a moment, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul's not, Paul's not even talking about baptism. He's talking about the, the sticky issue of a believer who finds themselves married to an, an unbeliever. And, and as he's giving instruction regarding that situation, he, he says almost in passing that the children of that marriage, where one of just one, just one of the parents is a believer, that child or those children are holy. In other words, in other words, covenantally set apart. They, they aren't outsiders to the church or strangers to the covenant promises of God. They have, and I think this is exactly how Dave put it, they have a different status than the children without a believing parent. And I think that seems to fit right in with the pattern of the inclusion of children 
with God's covenant purposes. It supports the idea then that the children of believers should receive the sign of that initiatory rite, namely baptism. And at least for me, this, this is what helped me make sense of the New Testament records of household baptisms. Actually, you know, uh, Luke, who, who wrote more of the New Testament than any other New Testament author, records just as many household baptisms as he does individual baptisms. So you can go to Acts 10, Acts 16, and Paul talks about it in first, um, an example of it in 1 Corinthians 1. These examples of entire households being baptized on the account of an adult's profession of faith. You take the Philippian jailer, for example, and we read, he believed and was baptized, him and his household. Now, you know, one of the responses that you'll hear is, well, the text doesn't say there were infants in the household. That's an assumption slipped in. Fair enough. But, but, but you see, if you read the New Testament in light of the old, if you understand oikos, household, from through the lenses of the Old Testament. Let me ask you this question. What, what happened if an outsider to the covenant promises in the Old Testament embraced Israel's God? He was circumcised. He and his household were brought into the covenant community. And so again, I think we, we see that that continues into the New Testament. God's covenant embraces the family, including infants. Then think about, think about for just a moment how the New Testament treats the children of believers. A question to ask, are they treated as insiders or outsiders? Are they, are they treated as strangers or members of the covenant community with, with privileges and responsibilities and obligations? When Paul writes to the, the church in Ephesus and, and, and he makes a series of applications, he talks to... Uh, Husbands and wives and masters and servants. And then he talks to parents and children. And he tells the children to obey their parents in the Lord. So let's just think about that with me for a a second because I think it's deeply significant. This was a letter written to the Ephesian church intended to be read publicly to the congregation or congregations perhaps in Ephesus. And, and, and Paul, while he's speaking to the assembly, the ecclesia, the gathered people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, he addresses the children of believers as members of that covenant community with responsibilities and obligations. He doesn't hesitate to give them commands in the Lord. And that fits, doesn't it? Just as children in the old covenant who were circumcised, were instructed to walk before the Lord and embrace the covenant promises of God. Paul is doing the very same thing with children under the new covenant. And therefore, we we regard children as members of the church. They They are received as members of the covenant community through the sign of baptism, not not communing members who come to the Lord's table because the New Testament requires discernment of the Lord's body and self-examination as prerequisites for coming to the Lord's table. But they are members, nonetheless, with rights and privileges and obligations. 
And just one other quick passage I want you to consider today. It's actually in all three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew 19, Mark 10, where parents are bringing their children to Jesus to be blessed by him. And you remember what Jesus says? He says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for of such is the kingdom of God. And of course, people, people ask the question, what, what, is, what does this have to do with baptism? The text is about parents bringing their children to Jesus, not to the font of baptism. Okay, fair enough. But I think that what Jesus says has implications for how we think about this covenant sign of baptism. Let me draw your attention just to one thing here. In Luke's account of this, it's interesting because he actually changes the word from the Greek word for children to the Greek word for infants. Um, he, he uses the word for nursing babies. And so Jesus is saying, let the babies, let the infants come to me for of such is the kingdom of God. Jesus is not merely saying that those who are like these little children, to, to them belongs the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God belongs to these little covenant children. Before they could ever profess faith, they are part of the kingdom of God. And so it seems to me that this passage, when it's considered in the big picture of continuity from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it suggests that in the mindset of Jesus Christ, the children of believers are included under the umbrella of the kingdom of God. Now, of course, as, as Dave reminded us, our children need to come to faith. They need, they need new hearts. They need the forgiveness of sins that comes through faith in Christ alone. They, they need the indwelling of the Spirit. Just as children under the, the old covenant who, who um, received the spiritual sign of circumcision needed those same spiritual blessings. But the great advantage, you see, the great advantage of children of the covenant is that they hear the gospel. They, they hear scripture they are set apart by God. They are prayed with and for. They are invited to call upon God as their heavenly father. And they are brought again and again to Christ and urged to embrace him by their church, by their covenant family. Not as outsiders to the covenant, but as members who must embrace the promises of God, which he gave to them and sealed to them, confirmed to them. From their earliest days. Well that, that in a nutshell. Is, is what we believe. Baptism is a picture. And a confirmation. Of union with Jesus. And all of the blessings. That we receive from him. And that sign. Should be administered to believers. And their children. Because dear friends. That promise is for you. And for your children. Praise be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you enter into covenant with sinners through your Son. 
And we thank you that you meet us where we are in the weakness of our faith, our feebleness, and you give us these visible, tangible signs to confirm to us and to our children the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. May our lives correspond to our baptisms, and may our children grow to see that their baptism calls them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to embrace him and take hold of these blessings for themselves. Grant them your spirit that they might do so. And as we come to the Lord's table now, bless us as we meet with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.